Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Dr. Nan Wise will join us to discuss why good sex matters. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Well, human behavior is said to be governed by four fundamental F's, feeding, fighting, fling, and of course, sex. But it may be the last one that has received the least attention scientifically. Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Dr. Nan Wise. Dr. Wise is a cognitive neuroscientist, professor, licensed psychotherapist, and certified relationship specialist. She has spent several years in clinical practice and has become driven to understand how the brain creates moods and behaviors in relations to sex and other aspects of human behavior. She has now written the new book, Why Good Sex Matters, Understanding the Neuroscience of Pleasure for a Smarter, Happier, and More Purpose-Filled Life. Dr. Wise, thanks so much for joining us on the Grok Science Show. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. A fascinating book you've written here, Why Good Sex Matters. How you became interested in the study of sex? The beginning of my career, and it's more like 30 years that I've been a therapist, I always dealt with sex because the way I looked at it, I'd ask people, how's your emotional health, how's your relationships, how's your work life, and how's your sex life? So it was always part of the picture for me. And I think how I ended up with sex neuroscience is that After my kids went off to live on their own and I was 50 years old, I'd always been interested in the brain and behavior. And I was able to uh, work with Dr. Beverly Whipple, who is a preeminent sex scientist, and Barry Kamasurak, who needed some help doing their research. And when I started helping them, and, and learning about fMRI, I went right back to graduate school. So I did the PhD, and I was very motivated by the huge amount of gaps in the literature on things that were so basic as what are the pathways between the genitals and the sensory cortex? Like, hello, no one had systematically studied that up until 2011. So there are a lot of big gaps in the literature in, about sex and the brain. So I felt really compelled to do that. And it's been an incredible journey. And why do you think it really been examined? This is a very what I call lewd prude nation. And we have some very strange attitudes about sexuality. So you know, for example, once when we were they came in Nightline came in to film one of my uh, experiments, and the correspondent started off with can you tell our viewers why you're studying sex instead of something important like cancer? And although they didn't include that in the airing, this is the kind of attitude that people have had, that they don't think that sex is important or as important. The point that I make in the book is that sex gives us a window into pleasure and beneath that to better understand the imbalances in what are the core wired in emotions 
that we share with animals that are ignored in science and ignored in medicine, although they've been very well documented, uh, primarily by the work of Dr. Yak Panksepp, who mapped out those circuits. So we share those seven basic circuits that can be electrically or chemically stimulated. And when you stimulate the circuit, for example, the fear circuit, you get an animal or a person who's scared. You know, I was going to use the S word, but scared, scared out of their wits. So these core emotional systems that psychology certainly, you know, ignores, and I've taken enough psychology courses and with two masters and a PhD, you'd think I'd come across this, and I didn't. So I actually branched out to learn more about some of these um, subcortical wired-in emotions through the work of Yak Pinksep, and actually I got to do some work with him, you know, with on the affective neuroscience personality scale. He and Ken Davis actually created a scale about personality that's actually based on what's happening in the emotional brain to be sort of measuring general levels of tonality. So this, these embodied emotions, these are visceral emotions that are felt in the body, but, and, and we largely ignore them in psychology. So this is why things like cognitive behavior therapy when we're using the top of the mind to try and steer us out of bad habits or towards good things, often is not enough because we get hijacked by these visceral kind of emotions in concert with old negative experiences or negative or positive experiences. Both can derail us in a way. By not understanding how we're wired emotionally, we have actually fallen into some very bad habits in our culture where there's a lot of anhedonia, inability to experience pleasure. And that's really what my book is about. That pleasure is not a luxury, it's a necessity. That healthy hedonism, which are pleasures that are good for us and feel good, really are necessary for a good, balanced emotional brain. So what's happened with us is now, you know, 23% of uh, Americans in a recent poll have reported not having sex over the past year, and the rates of anxiety and depression are certainly elevated as are addictions, abuse to abuse of both uh, prescribed and non-prescribed painkillers. So we're a nation now, and it's not even just us, but people are having a hard time really experiencing the kind of pleasures that work well and help balance our wired-in emotions. Is it that we're trying to promote the wrong sort of behaviors where we're not paying attention to those core emotions, things that drive our behavior? Precisely. And I think one kind of simple way to look at it is that the way that we're living, we're getting our attention hijacked constantly. That's, you know, we talk about the seeking system, which used to be thought of as the, the reward system, the mesolimbic dopamine system. That, you know, is I call uh, dopamine a slutty neurotransmitter because it's released, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. However, that dopamine thing is not really a reward so much as it's a learning signal. So it gets our attention. But what happens is it's really associated with craving and wanting, not satisfaction. So, you know, what, you know, people who are addicted, what's their favorite drug? More. So even if we're not looking at addiction, I think addiction is an overused term anyway, 
you know, we're getting all these bump-ups from these, you know, kind of, you know, things on our social devices. We're, we're constantly streaming and being plugged into a lot of very high attention grabbing things that people are engineering. Attention, you know, engineers work on websites and social media to grab our attention. So that is affecting us in a way where if the seeking system is overused, the seeking system, which is the dopamine system, is meant to move us into the world, to give us the enthusiasm and the exuberance enough to go meet our other needs. But if this is being drained constantly, we get flat. When the seeking system goes flat, we're depressed. And what other, the other piece of this is that since we're not spending nearly enough time face-to-face and flesh-to-flesh, so we're not really stimulating and spending time with the kind of um, connections that are satisfying. So social joy and deep connection, you know, love and caring and tenderness are the best antidepressants known to man. And what are we doing? We're spending more time looking at our devices than each other. We're no longer having the touch and the the connection and all the good stuff that, for example, healthy hedonism, sex with a partner, who you like, who likes you, that's sex that feels good and is good for you. Eating foods that are healthy for us. You know, I love Doritos. If I eat a bag of Doritos, it's not healthy hedonism. It's going, And if I listen to my body afterwards, my body's going to say, this is not good. But we're just not, we're not even in our bodies anymore. People are kind of like heads on sticks these days. And if you look around, we have a lot of obesity. People are sedentary. Their kids aren't playing rough and tumble play to get to learn how to how to um, compete and cooperate. So they don't even they're having trouble launching into romantic sexual relationships. They're lacking the social skills for that. So our society now has given us artificial hits to systems, and now we're missing the hits that really mean something. Exactly, exactly. So that we're disrupting the normal healthy functioning of these wired and emotional systems is basically the bottom line. And, and the capacity, plus we live in a culture that doesn't really value pleasure. We have so many implicit Puritan kind of Protestant Puritan kind of things where you're, you're supposed to work for everything you get. And pleasure is like something that we want, but we really don't allow ourselves to have satisfying pleasures. The time that we need to really self-care, the time we need to be connected to each other, you know, face-to-face, listening to people. You know, texting can be fun and useful, but you can't hear somebody when they're talking to you through text. And actually, the way we're wired, there's even a system that Stephen Porges, who is someone who's talked a lot about the social Vegas and how the sound of a calming, pleasant voice when we're connecting with someone helps downregulate our alarm systems of the autonomic nervous system. And we are, if you look at politics, if you look at what's happening in this country, every, seems like a lot of people are just on edge. We're we're fearful, we're anxious, people aren't comfortable, you know, there's these like kind of all or nothing Republican Democrats, you know, it's like the the 
the sort of being able to be affiliative in the affiliative systems seems to be really on the downtrend. Is this sort of a uniquely American problem? I mean, are there other countries perhaps that are more in touch with a healthy hedonistic lifestyle that we can learn from? One would think so. And recently, I guess over the summer, I was interviewed by the BBC radio. And if you look now at studies, sex is dropping in other countries as well. So this apparently seems to be subverting some of the more pleasure-seeking cultures. Like, you know, years ago when I went to Europe, I was shocked because they had breasts, naked breasts out and people breasts on television and they seemed so less, so much less prudish than America. And I think that there probably are still some differences, like people might, you know, take a little bit more time to enjoy their meals. And I do think that as much as we like technology and it can be very useful, you can't blame technology. It's how we use it that may not be working for us. So, you know, some of the, I think it was the Gallup poll in America, the APA did a Gallup poll that showed that the vast majority of Americans found that their smartphone use was associated with stress and anxiety. It's really how you use it. So the phenomenon of constant partial attention where you're like, your phone is there, your computer is there, notifications are coming in, you're monitoring stuff in the background. It's not the same as multitasking. It's actually more draining and can create a lot more anxiety and interfere with even the functioning of our working memories. And that's distressing when I see my students, where I, when I teach young people, and they are so plugged into their devices that they're no longer, I think, paying as much attention to what's right there in the room with them. And then they wonder why they have trouble with the material and, you know, the, they, they think they've studied and they're not learning. And I think they're, they're really hampering their ability to pay good attention to whatever it is, whether it's social cues when they're with each other or whether it's learning in the lecture room when they're with me. And it's almost like they're afraid. I've, I've, I've done challenges with my classes to say, hey, you know, let's see what happens when we put our phones down and like kind of turn them off. So many of them use their phones to take notes, which is, you know, something. But they found it very challenging. Like in my human sexuality class where I said, like, let's learn how to connect here. And they managed about one class before they started to, you know, pull out the phones again. So it's almost like a kind of, I guess, as as um, natives, you know, Internet natives, they're so used to the world as kind of seen through, even when there's someplace they're busy taking pictures rather than being present to what is happening. So I think this, these are habits that some of the young people, not all of them, but many are kind of um, adapting that may not be in their best interest because it doesn't help them learn how to regulate emotions. You know, the frontal regions are not fully myelinated and connected to the limbic regions and until mid-20s. And so they're constantly kind of interrupting the ability of working memory to just work. And that can have a real, I think, um, deleterious effect on their ability to learn emotional regulation. And we're seeing a lot of increases in anxiety and depression on college campuses now.
What is it that we can do to promote a healthy emotional brain? Well, I think first understanding that we have a level of it that connects us with animals. And and to me, I cannot for the life of me understand why psychology resists this. I mean, other than the implications of admitting that animals express emotion, which is, you know, a lot of people don't like to look at that because it puts us in a different position with our four-legged friends who are very different at the top of the mind, as, as Panksepp used to say. But it's very, they feel very much core stuff that we feel, although they're not reflecting on it. They're feeling it in the moment. You know, we have to educate ourselves better to be, I guess, more intelligent in operating these systems. And I found, I think this all kind of started for me having, you know, panic attacks in my early 20s that were so devastating to me that I had to really learn how to work with my own nervous system. So I had to work with my body and my breath and yoga, and that's where I got into, you know, all of these kinds of practices using breath work, and I continue to do that with my clients now, helping them regulate their autonomic nervous system, the body, the visceral experience, letting them feel their emotions. So I think we need to have a higher um, tolerance for feeling our feelings, and not rushing to make them go away by reaching for the phone or reaching for the for the Doritos or the booze. or, And it's not bad for people to enjoy these pleasures, even if they're not healthy pleasures, in moderation. Just being more aware of that we have bodies. If you look at how many people are obese right now, they're not in their body. They're not feeling the effects of their eating, and they're not moving. When people come to my office, I often feel like I'm dealing with a head on a stick if I say what's going on in your body they look at me like I'm crazy so I'm educating people as you would on a yoga mat like to be aware of being in your body the sensations from your body and encouraging people to feel them and have them be informational rather than have the feelings end up hijacking us close your book talking about sex as a tool for transformation and difference between good sex and great sex How can we then use our sexual health to promote all these that we really want from our emotional brain? Well, I think the issue is more about pleasure than it is about sex per se. Because, you know, some people decide that sex is not that important to them. And I think that, you know, that's perfectly fine. You know, no one should judge or should on somebody else in terms of their sexual life or, or lack thereof. And I do think that one of the most important things is prioritizing pleasure in the connection with taking time to be aware of what's happening in our bodies and be connecting, listening to other people, touching other people. Like, you know, when I say touching, I'm not talking about sexual touch. I'm talking about proximity and connection and affection and warmth. And we've gotten to the place in the culture where people are afraid to even touch each other. You know, that it's going to be misconstrued as some kind of sexual harassment, which is why I think we're a lewd prude nation where we're so obsessed with sex, but we don't really even look at it at sex as a healthy way to connect and that we can connect physically without even being sexual and not sexualize it. Outside of a wholesale vision of our culture, what can we do? I think the grassroots thing, if people realize that 
pleasure's okay and pleasure's important, they might slow down a little bit and be more attuned to the things that give them pleasure. It's kind of like a mindfulness practice. So it's kind of like when you're more in your body, I think you're a better citizen. And I'll tell you why I think this. We have capacity. Most people feel a reaction to seeing somebody else in pain, you know, in a room. And they've they've done fMRI studies when people see other people in pain. Our own pain centers activate, particularly the emotional pain, not the physical pain centers. And I think when we're in tune with our bodies, when we slow down and we kind of feel more like attention on our bodies, taking attention so much from outside the constant barrage of stimuli and kind of, you know, being attuned to our bodies, we're less likely to be able to ignore other people's situations, other people's challenges. Back in the day, there was that Milgram experiment. Do you remember with, where they had, uh, Milgram had people, he was studying obedience and he it was, you know, coming right off of the Nazis. He was having um, an experiment where he had people believing they were shocking, uh, ostensibly other people, it was Confederates, uh, to to consequent them from making mistakes on a, quote, a learning task. And shockingly, more people than they could ever imagine went all the way to shock people, these fake shocks, up to levels that were supposedly dangerous. And the person in the other room was yelling, stop, my heart, my heart. And when they tried to kind of post-analyze who were the people that would not shock all the way or who would stop the experiment even though the person in the lab coat was saying you must follow the protocol you must respect the protocol the only thing that seemed to distinguish people from who wouldn't shock from people who did was the people who said they wouldn't shock said it made them feel sick in their bodies so we have this wonderful capacity even Laboratory rats will work to prevent another lab a rat from being shocked. We have this widening capacity that we can feel concern and caring for other people by feeling the distress in our own body. But if we're not paying attention to our bodies and we're being hijacked with all these you know negative messages politically about fear and distrust and you know by how we get so out of our actual experience, you know, these true believers are the scariest people where, you know, your belief is more important than what's happening in front of you. So I think this is really a, you know, I kind of wish we all could become hippies again, you know, and get in touch with the, the simpler, more natural kind of connections and pleasures that really are deeply feeding of the care system, which is our own natural opiates, opioids that, you know, give us that well-being, the social joy of play. So connection and play are really, really important, especially now. And sex is a great way to be able to connect with our bodies and be caring and loving and joyful and erotic with other people. But it's not just about sex. It's about us being able to connect. We were just talking with Dr. Nan Wise. She has written the new book, Why Good Sex Matters, Understanding the Neuroscience of Pleasure for a Smarter, Happier, and More Purpose-Filled Life. And Dr. Wise, thanks so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thanks for having me. 
And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.